Hi, this is Toby. Okay, just a quick message from me before we start, because I want to get my excuses in early. There are some parts of this conversation where the audio quality leaves a lot to be desired. You'll hear it sounds sometimes, especially towards the end, as if Natasha and I are talking to each other via tin cans connected by string. Um, I'd love to say this is because she was talking to me from her Antarctic research base or something, but sadly, no, it's just regular gremlins. You may also notice there are a couple of parts of the conversation where the original audio from our conversation was too poor to use, and we had to make some re-recordings after the event, which is not ideal. Um, as always, though, it's perfectly listenable, and it's well worth your time if you're at all interested, as you definitely should be, in a, a totally different world of science and policy and geopolitics. I learned an awful lot talking to Natasha, and I hope you might too. So bear with the gremlins, with my apologies, and enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Natasha Gardner, who's an environmental advisor at Antarctica New Zealand, the government agency which leads New Zealand's activities in Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, and she's also a doctoral researcher at the University of Canterbury, focusing on the science policy interface in Antarctica, and a member of the Ant-ICON Steering Committee. Ant-ICON apparently standing for Integrated Science to Inform Antarctic and Southern Ocean Conservation, from which we learn, to my great relief, that the EU does not have the monopoly on weird acronyms. So, Natasha, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. So you've asked me to make clear before we start, and of course I'm, I'm happy to do it, um, that everything you say in our conversation is from your research perspective and it's not the views of any of the organisations you're linked to, including Antarctica New Zealand, which is, uh, I think, a good start. It makes me excited you might be about to drop some bombshells. Perhaps not bombshells. We won't go as far as to say that. <laughs> well, let's see how we go. Before we get into the juicy stuff, um, <laughs> obviously before we even get into talking about science at all, tell me about Antarctica. What's it like? Wow. Well, um, Antarctica, it's an incredible place. I'm lucky enough to say that I have been twice. And it's like no place I've ever been before. It's absolutely astounding and beautiful and very humbling. And yeah, it's very emotional being there. And it really makes you start to think about, you know, your presence there in Antarctica and whether or not you being there is actually worthwhile and also your presence on earth and the impacts that we're having. So it kind of makes you really think about these um, quite important things. So it's a very special place in my heart. Yes, so I can hear. How, how did it make its way into your heart, as you put it? What's the story of, of this love affair? I don't know. I've always had a fascination with Antarctica. I suppose maybe it started with my love for Pingu as a small child. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that would do it. Yeah. Uh, but perhaps you should explain for people who are maybe not of our generation. Um, Pingu is a kids' TV show about a little plasticine penguin child, basically, That's and right. his family who who live in an igloo, I guess, in Antarctica, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm sure David Attenborough probably has something to answer for as well. But it was actually I, my interest in Antarctica really grew when I watched a New Zealand well, a, a documentary that was directed by a New Zealander called Peter Young called The Last Ocean, which was about the Ross Sea and the toothfish fishery that's going on down there. And I really had no idea that there was this fishery that was exploiting the ocean that was between New Zealand and Antarctica. 
And within the documentary, they had uh, the narrative from the scientists as well as those in decision-making roles. And it was really interesting to see a disconnect between those two. And I started wondering, you know, why is it that the science that's coming from Antarctica isn't being listened to? Like, what's going on there? What is that disconnect? And that's kind of what sort of brought me to the nucleus of my studies anyway in the science policy interface in Antarctica. But. Wow. Okay. So so it was becoming aware of something not not being right, that gap between science and policy as you saw it then. Yeah. Huh. And it's interesting. I mean, of course, this is obvious as soon as you think about it, I suppose, but I, I, I never really have thought about it. You talk about this ocean between New Zealand and Antarctica. I mean, New Zealand's a very, very long way from Antarctica, right? But there's really nothing in between except water. Yeah, well, there's a couple, there's a few sub-Antarctic islands, but yep, there's pretty much a big space with a very, very deep, very cold ocean, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, okay. So it's not just somewhere where you you Kiwis pop down from time to time when you fancy some winter sports. (laughs) No, you've got to have a very specific reason to go to Antarctica. And that was always kind of the thing for me growing up. I thought, will I ever have a reason enough to be able to actually go there and it just so happens that the life path I've taken has enabled that, which has been just so incredible. <laughs> it just so happens, right? By sheer coincidence, you chose to study the place. Yeah, <laughs> total coincidence. <laughs> All right. So so this is a part of the world which um, which I guess is not, strictly speaking, a country. It doesn't really have a government. Um, no, no native population, well, no human native population anyway. Mm. So um, can you just quickly fill us in on how this place works Broadly speaking, like who who runs Antarctica other than Pingu and his friends? Just the penguins, Toby. <laughs> yeah, the political setup of Antarctica is very unique in comparison to you know other governance regimes around the globe. It's governed under a treaty system called the Antarctic Treaty System, which is essentially a suite of legal instruments that each play a role in the governance of the marine space and also the terrestrial space. And some of those instruments are for environmental protection, others are for marine conservation, and then you have the treaty itself. Okay, and and how does that quite unique system, how has it evolved? Where does it come from? Yeah, so the basic political setup in Antarctica. So we kind of, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Wind in time back to the 1950s. Uh, World War II was obviously very fresh in everybody's minds. The Cold War was ongoing. And 12 nations agreed to work in Antarctica. Some of those nations had already been working in Antarctica already in a scientific um, way. And so the international Council for Scientific Unions at the time appointed a special committee on Antarctic research and that is now the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research which is still very much an active body in this whole system. Right and this is what's now called SCAR. Yeah so SCAR was set up in order to basically facilitate the science in Antarctica and what actually happened was the research was highly productive, um, the international collaboration was extremely admirable, especially at time of such um, conflict. This was sort of all happening at the same time that there was this growing concern, especially from the United States, that Antarctica was going to become a place where the Soviets would use as a part of you know, escalating this arms race to a whole new level. Ah. And so as well as that, there was also the sovereign claims. So by that stage, seven countries had laid claims over Antarctica, and this was causing particular conflict on the Antarctic Peninsula. We had Chile, Argentina, and the UK, who all had overlapping claims in that area. 
Uh, so, what? Hang on, hang on. The UK. Yes. <laughs> on what basis did did the UK have any claim? <laughs> yeah, and it, it is interesting. I mean, most of the most of the claims are kind of aligning with the geographical. So you know, New Zealand's claim is right below New Zealand. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose the, the UK have just gone and you know put a flag down in the snow right on the peninsula. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> much to the distress of Chile and Argentina. Yeah, I bet. Um, what was interesting though about that was that America and Russia actually didn't lay claims, but they just reserved the right to make claims in the future. And as you might know, America now has a base at the South Pole, which is strategically across all of the claims. Um, so with all that in mind, uh, President Eisenhower of the United States, he invited all of those 12 nations, so all those nations that have been um, actively engaging in this Antarctic scientific work and effort. Um, essentially, he organized a series of secret meetings, and that was where this Antarctic Treaty started emerging. And the treaty is an astounding piece of legislation. It's incredibly short, which is really nice in comparison to other pieces of legislation. And what it actually did was it set the entire continent aside for peaceful and scientific purposes and cooperation towards that end. It also banned nuclear weapons and military activities, except for the purpose of science. Uh, but most importantly, the Article 4 of the treaty actually set aside those sovereign claims. So essentially it froze those claims, is what everybody likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> so Article 4 is like the absolute linchpin because all of those other principles like peace and science, they would not be able to occur without having set aside these sovereign claims. So yes, like you say, um, no one country is in charge of reigning Antarctica. They've agreed to actually set aside sovereignty. Saying that sovereignty does definitely underlie how Antarctic treaty parties are engaging with Antarctica. Um, stations is a good example of that. So a lot of these countries have stations only within their Antarctic claim. Um, so yeah, so that's the Antarctic Treaty, an incredible piece of work. Huh. So, it, so it turns out that the world has uh, an entire continent which is dedicated purely to science. Who knew? Yes. What it set up as well was a consensus decision-making model for the system. So for every agreement that has to be made, all of the countries involved have to agree. And there's two types of parties. So there's consultative parties, so Antarctic Treaty consultative parties, and those are the parties with decision-making power. And what's fascinating about those parties is that in order to gain that status, the decision-making status, you actually have to demonstrate that you are undertaking substantial scientific activity in Antarctica. So they've almost gone and put a price on the head of science. Ah, uh -huh, intriguing. Yeah, so people have referred to science as the currency of Antarctica. And so back then, obviously, you had these 12 nations. Now we've got 54 parties. Uh, 29 of those are consultative. And then you've got non-consultative parties as well. Right. So how big an area are we talking about here, geographically? The Antarctic Treaty covers an area south of 60 degrees south. But at that time, the question of, well, does the ocean fit into this? Like, does the atmosphere fit into this? That was all kind of up in the air, a little bit ambiguous. Um, but later, that was clarified by a series of other agreements. I see. 
That included a convention in the 70s for Antarctic seals and then another convention in the 80s when concerns were rising again about the overexploitation of other marine resources. So the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources was signed in 1980 and it actually has a larger geographical scope than the Antarctic Treaty itself. Um, it has a mandate to manage the area right up until what is known as the Polar Front, which is where the cold Antarctic water sinks down below the warm water from the tropics. And this was an area where um, the science community argued was ecologically significant, and so they wanted Kamala to manage a larger area than just south of 60 degrees south. Okay, that makes sense. And around the same time, something else that was very interesting and that saw a lot of countries actually ratifying the Antarctic Treaty was a growing interest in other resources, and they were the mineral resources in Antarctica. So countries were becoming very interested in the prospect of mining down there. And again, SCAR was tasked to, to provide some evidence to the Antarctic Treaty parties regarding the environmental impacts of mining, which they went away and did. And that contributed to their, the treaty parties. They started negotiating this agreement called CRAMRA, which was the Convention on the Regulation of Antarctic Mineral Resources. Um, and mining was to be regulated under that agreement. But it actually never came into force because France and Australia actually last minute refused to sign it and they were quickly followed by a number of other countries. So suddenly the question of resources was just out on the table. Um, that can of worms was open. Mm. And, but that was kind of a blessing in disguise because a lot of the work that had gone into negotiating CRAMRA, including environmental impact assessment, for example, um, was then actually quickly used to develop what is now a very powerful agreement, which is the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, uh, which was signed in 1991, and that came into force in 98, and they actually just outright banned mining activities in Antarctica, except for scientific purposes. So again, we have this like, this science just playing this very crucial role. Yeah. So Antarctica by that was designated as a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. And it sets out a comprehensive framework for managing human activities with the environment, uh, environment in mind. And yeah, so that's actually the major, the last major agreement that was added to the system. So that was over 25 years ago now. So I find this a fascinating idea that you've got this part of the world where you can only be involved in governance if you're willing to do proper science, like the whole place hinges on it. It's fascinating to think that that kind of utopian setup was built, even though the place is full of resources. And also at a time when the rest of the world didn't exactly have a utopian geopolitical environment either. I know. Well, saying that actually mining extracting mineral resources in Antarctica would be quite a difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, the ocean there is very deep. The seabed's very far away from the surface. Right. So you do have that as a bit of a barrier as well. And that's where it becomes interesting because you could ask the question of what, well, what is science? You know, because science could be finding out how easy it is to get to the seabed in the ocean. Or, yeah. And there have been these issues where countries are undertaking scientific activities that might be seen as something quite different. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so like um, oh, we were just doing scientific research to see how far we could drill into the seabed, right? No ulterior <laughs> motive yeah. whatsoever. That, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So how about the future? This, this unique like science governance system you've described, is it 
robust? Will it hold together or is it under pressure? Yeah, that's a very good question. And a lot of people have said that this this has been one of the most successful, you know, treaty systems ever because it's it's pretty amazing. And if you if you look at the original objectives of the treaty, which is peace and science and cooperation, this is what we have seen for the past 60 years, the predominant activity has been science, peace has prevailed. And yeah, it's been successful in many ways, such as, you know, the external conflicts that have occurred outside of the regime haven't been brought into, the, you know, the Antarctic political sphere. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. I find that's amazing. Yeah. So as we've just discussed, you know, in response to issues as they arose, the treaty parties were really good at actually negotiating these agreements. They put in place, you know, the protocol ban on mining before it was actually happening. Um, but just because it's worked so well in the past, I just don't think we should become complacent and assume that that means it's going to work well in the future. It's now facing a whole range of issues that it wasn't back in the 50s, you know, when the Antarctic Treaty was first negotiated. And an example of that would be bioprospecting. So that involves extracting marine genetic resources for things like medicines and pharmaceuticals. And you can actually put patents on those organisms. And this has been happening in the Antarctic and the treaty parties have been discussing it for years. And we are yet to see a policy or regulation framework for these activities. Um, What was also written into the treaty was the freely sharing scientific information. And so you can see that bioprospecting kind of goes against that principle. If you're suddenly putting a patent on organisms or information, it's not exactly freely sharing in an equal way. Um, But what you have to remember as well, though, is that there's so many countries who are involved in decision making now. So you have, you know, you have 29 countries as opposed to the original 12 and in that consensus decision-making model, making progress has become very slow. Yeah, so like consensus decision-making is something we also know in the European Union uh, can really slow things down and make it difficult to make decisions. Yeah, it's it's kind of, that consensus decision-making is you know it's a strength and a weakness of the system because at least when you have an agreement, everybody's on board and you're going forward at the same rate. But literally, a party can veto by just saying no, we don't want that and. Unfortunately, we have seen that a lot in the case of CAMLA, so in managing the Southern Ocean, especially in terms of marine protected areas. And if you look at the original objective of CAMLA, which is a conservation instrument, well, actually, it's really functioning as a regional fisheries organisation, you know. And, yeah, trying to agree on things like marine protected areas is becoming very difficult. And actually, some really robust scientific advice is being put forward to support these proposals for more marine protection and it gets to those decision makers and politics and um, economic interests are getting in the way. So yeah, there is a lot of a lot of stress on the system, I think. And you know, we have a shift in global powers. And so before when you had uh, these external kind of conflicts not influencing the system we're seeing that actually more and more external geopolitics are creeping into the system. And also compliance is kind of an issue because compliance is largely just based on goodwill with a lot of it. So, And now you have these countries who are kind of flexing their muscles and a lot of things need to change if the Antarctic Treaty System is to stay robust. Another issue is that the Antarctic Treaty parties are very reluctant to engage with external agreements or instruments. I mean, they're very reluctant to gauge with the United Nations, for example. And 
I think isolating the Antarctic when Antarctica plays such an essential role in you know global Earth systems isn't very helpful going forward. Okay, great. So that's a really good summary of like the governance structure and the kind of geopolitical setup that exists. And, and what I thought I might ask you next is, okay, let's talk about the science policy interface. But that seems like a silly question now in a way, because what we've just been discussing is a system, like a really unique system where where there hardly is an interface. Science and politics are literally intermingled all the way up and down. Yeah. So, um, so I guess instead we should we should just try to focus in on one one part of it at a time. So you've mentioned SCAR, the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, which which seems to have been pivotal in informing a lot of these past governance decisions. Tell me a bit more about the role of SCAR. Yeah. Okay. So SCAR's role is to initiate, facilitate and coordinate all of this sort of Antarctic science that's going on um, internationally and deliver that in an objective, independent way to the decision makers at uh, the Antarctic Treaty Consultative meetings and also to CAMLA. I'll talk about CAMLA in a moment. CAMLA has, I would say, slightly less of a relationship with SCAR because CAMLA actually developed its own scientific committee and I'll get onto that in a minute. So in terms of SCAR, so SCAR, as I said earlier, it's a committee of the International Science Council, and it provides advice into the Antarctic Treaty System, but it also has links with other international fora. So, for example, it's an official observer to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, and links with well, contributes to the IPCC. So SCAR's actually been pretty active in the space of engaging with external agreements and bodies of work. Um, so the structure of SCAR, it's got three permanent science groups, and that's the geosciences, life sciences, and physical sciences. And underneath that, it has these scientific research programs. And these programs run for about eight years. They're very large, generally, and multidisciplinary, and they focus on areas of high priority. So ANT-ICON, which is the um, scientific research program that I sit on the steering committee for, that is largely looking at science that can inform the governance of Antarctica and the Southern Ocean. Um, whereas you have, say, INSTANT, which is another SRP, which is a scientific research program under SCAR, and that's looking at um, instabilities and thresholds with Antarctica, for example. Yeah, so Antarctica's contribution to sea level rise. So that's more like a scientific research program that kind of has these links to the rest of the world mm. and science advice that we can provide to others about things like sea level rise. And yeah, they have links with the IPCC as well and the World Climate Research Program, things like that. But in terms of science policy within SCAR, probably the most important linkage is the Standing Committee on the Antarctic Treaty System. And that's commonly known as SCATS. And SCATS actually developed SCAR's scientific advice to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meetings and the CEP, the Committee for Environmental Protection, which I'll get onto in a moment, and CAMLA. And so all of the scientific advice that comes out of these programs under SCAR feeds up through SCATS and is delivered to these decision-making fora. So say with the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, this is an annual meeting, mm -hmm. aside from it didn't happen last year because of COVID. But, and the way that information feeds into that system is through these working papers, information papers, and background papers. And the working papers are the ones that will be discussed on the table by the decision makers 
who are there at the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting. And the people who attend those meetings are like a government officials, lawyers, diplomats. So they are the national delegations. Um, and again, there's the decision-making parties, 29 countries, and then there's also 25 countries who are there at these meetings, but they're not, they can be involved in the discussions, but not involved in the decision-making. Mm-hmm. And the policy outcomes, as you will, of those meetings are in the form of measures, resolutions, and decisions. And out of those, measures are the legally binding ones. Um, and what is interesting, I think, is that there's been a real decrease in the number of measures that these parties are being agree- have been agreeing. So, you know, in terms of like meaty measures that are really cha- making like a big change, the last, you know, the last one would have been in the early 2000s. So um, that's the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting. Are you following? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- well, I think so, but m- maybe it's wise to check. So the research coming out of SCAR translates into advice uh, to this kind of supreme decision-making body, the consultative meeting, via a specialist science advice group called SCATS. Yeah. Okay, fine. But you also mentioned something else, the CEP, the Committee for Environmental Protection. Is that a different body? So... When the protocol on environmental protection was agreed, they actually assigned a committee for environmental protection. So that's a technical advisory body that ensures compliance with the protocol. And so that was an interesting point in time as well, because when the CEP was established in 98, previous to that, SCAR had been working directly with the decision makers at the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meetings in order to make evidence-based decisions. But once the CEP was established, SCAR's role kind of became, there was a bit of a bit of a pickle that they were all in because now you suddenly have this technical advisory body, which is largely made up of the environmental managers from national Antarctic programs and the kind of people who are actually involved in making sure that the policy is actually enacted on the ground. And so suddenly they were also advising the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting. And what both the, so the CEP meets at the same time as the ATCM. So literally in two separate rooms, you've got the people who are advising the decision makers at the same time. And um, about halfway through, the CEP delivers a report to the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting with all of their recommendations. So the CEP actually advises and gives recommendations on what the policy options might be for the decision makers, whereas SCAR will be delivering just independent science advice into the system. Okay, so there's, so there's two layers now. SCAR is scientific like evidence, science information, that kind of advice, and CEP is policy options about what decision makers should do. And you also have these other observers there as well. So you've got like NGOs. NGOs are another source of like where scientific information feeds into the system. And also scientists can sit on national delegations as well. So that's kind of like more, almost I'd say like personal relationships with scientists sitting there with, you know, the people who are heading the delegation and giving them advice into their ear. Yeah. Okay. Sounds familiar. And then how do these various bodies decide what to advise on? So the CP has developed a five-year work plan, which essentially has listed their priorities and research needs as well. Um, the 
non-native species issue is sitting very high priority on there as well as climate change. And what the CP and the ATCM can both do is they can actually task SCAR to investigate issues that they need information on. So SCAR will go away and do the work. But also SCAR can bring information into the treaty that SCAR sees as important and that those you know, decision makers need to know about. So it's like solicited and unsolicited advice coming from SCAR. And SCAR also delivers a lecture every year for one hour at the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting. Um, and it's interesting if you kind of look back in time, SCAR has become a lot more, I think, engaged in the science policy interface, not giving recommendations per se, but definitely trying to make a real effort in ensuring that the science that they're delivering is able to be utilised in decision making. And a part of that as well is there's actually a platform, um, which is an online platform called the Antarctic Environments Portal. And SCAR, that was actually a New Zealand initiative, but it's been taken on by SCAR and it's essentially a platform that provides all of these information summaries and you know, policymakers can go on there and find out very short summaries about the latest issues. Yeah, so there's these sort of very formal mechanisms in place for how science is feeding into the policy arena. So the CEP you mentioned is like environmental managers from the countries that are involved in Antarctica. Um, and how about SCAR? I take it these are the actual researchers, are they? Yeah, so scientists, Antarctic researchers from all different disciplines. Yeah. Right, okay, gotcha. So then the obvious question to ask, given all that setup you described, is uh, does it work? Like, is the science well used? Do policymakers feel informed? Do scientists feel listened to? Like, can you see the impacts of it? Yeah, this is a really great question. And this is kind of where the direction I'm taking with my PhD. It's like, you know, you have all these formal mechanisms in place and you, you've got all these, you know, scientific advisory bodies there to deliver this advice, but how well is it actually working and how do those policymakers value this scientific advice that they're receiving? And yes, I think overall scientific advice is well respected within the system. It's, it has to be, it's written into every piece of legislation and documentation, but I think we're definitely seeing an erosion of evidence-based policy and you really don't have to look too far in the literature to see that the scientific community is quite um, I would say dissatisfied with the way things are going I mean the protected area system is a good example of that Um, Mm -hmm. yeah the parties have committed to protecting they've they've said that they're committed to protecting um, more than 10% of the southern ocean for example and a representative network of marine protected areas is currently far from the horizon. They've been trying to negotiate three additional marine protected areas. There's already two in in the Southern Ocean, um, but it's really it's a slowing process, and this is largely again due to those um, geopolitical constraints that are coming in. Right. So you definitely feel like it's um, it's a change for the worse compared to say 10, 20, 30 years ago. Science advice is being listened to less than it was before. Yeah, well, there's kind of no definitive answer to that, and it depends on what particular issue you look at. But I do think there appears to be an increasingly inverse relationship between the two, where we're seeing, you know, the quality of science and our knowledge um, constantly improving, and the science advice that's feeding into the system is, you know, feeding in through some fairly robust mechanisms. 
that the rate of policy in response to the advice is actually decreasing. And of course, this is the focus of my research, and I'm yet to understand how the various actors involved in these processes are perceiving the effectiveness of this interface. Um, and that's also something I would definitely have to keep in mind is that I'm going into this with my sort of own ideas about how well this is working. And um, yeah, I come with my own biases as any researcher does. Okay, so so why is that? I mean, you mentioned the geopolitics kind of leaking in and infecting things. And yeah, okay, I mean, I get that. But then the geopolitical situation in the 1950s wasn't all sunshine and roses by any means. So the, the question becomes, why is that infecting Antarctica now when it wasn't previously? Do we know the answer to that question? Yeah, I don't think I really have an answer to that question. Um, well, y- yeah, I think it's it's a mix. So, so basically, you've kind of got this also, you've got almost two playing fields. You've got the international playing field, and then you come back to the national level. And so, say with the CP five-year work plan that they've agreed at the international level, the question is, okay, so you've agreed this plan and you've listed these research priorities. Everybody leaves that meeting, goes home at the end of the day, go back to their countries. Who's actually ensuring that that plan is being followed? And is it informing, say, national science strategies and who's funding that work? And that's what I'm also really interested with the PhD. It's, I mean, say here in New Zealand, uh, we have... In, in one particular case, we've got one ministry funding the science and then we've got another ministry that's using the science. Yeah. And how much are those ministries actually talking? Mm. So that's another issue. And every country goes home and does things completely differently as well, as well as in the environmental management realm. They're all kind of going away and interpreting these internationally set rules and guidelines each in their own way. So, yeah. Yeah, is there any kind of uh, like arbitration structure, any way to resolve disagreements or or kind of compel a country to do what it's signed up to? It is largely based on goodwill. There is a dispute mechanism within the treaty, but to my knowledge, it's never been uh, used. Uh, I, yeah. I, okay, interesting. And what's what's also interesting is that those legally binding measures there's actually no time frame on when the countries have to go back and ensure that they're enforced in their national legislation. So they could do all this work, they could agree by consensus, and then everybody goes home and they just don't do it anyway. So there's a lot of internal complexity and you know challenges within the system as well. And, and yeah, until this stage, it has worked really well based on that sort of goodwill. I mean, it's kind of a gentleman's agreement in the start. Mm. Everybody would follow the rules. Um, that's sort of changing a little bit now. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you give, maybe it would be helpful to have an example of, of an area where the science advisors are giving a clear message, but it's not landing as it were, where it's not being translated into policy. Now you've mentioned a couple in passing, like uh, like foreign species and ocean conservation. Do you want to say a bit more about these areas or another area where science and politics aren't aligned? Yeah, climate change is a funny one. All right. Obviously climate change is having huge impacts on Antarctica, um, disproportionate impacts across, you know, the continent. And a lot of the science that's going on in Antarctica is, of course, climate science. But what's interesting is that climate change is not necessarily something that can be managed within the context of the Antarctic Treaty Parties. Uh, No, Antarctica not being a a great, well-known world economy, um, not using a lot of energy or emitting a lot of CO2, for instance. Yes, that's right. So we can, you know, national Antarctic programs can do their bit and make sure that they have good 
you know, protocols in place to ensure that they're reducing their emissions. But that's an interesting one because you've kind of got the science community on the one hand saying this is really important. There's lots of vulnerable areas in Antarctica that require protection so that we can build resilience against climate. Um, for example, the Antarctic Peninsula is suffering hugely from climate change and these ice-free areas are going to get bigger and climate change exacerbates all of the other problems such as the introduction of non-native species. They can settle much more easily if they have these nice sort of grassy areas and the temperature's warmer. And so there's a lot of ways there are a lot of ways within the Antarctic Treaty System that we could be managing the impacts of climate change much better. And yeah, again, it comes back to that question of, okay, so we've got these research priorities in place and we've got these needs from the policy side. Who's actually going away and doing the work? And that's not totally clear. Some countries who are involved are completely uninterested in talking about climate change in the context of Antarctica because they think that that's an issue that should be dealt with by the United Nations or by external bodies and agreements. So, yeah, it's a kind of a funny, contentious, hot topic. Oh, excuse the pun. Uh, yeah, we should have agreed at the start not to do these puns. I think it's just too easy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, putting that on ice for now, I think climate change is also an interesting one because it's a good example of where the science goes in both directions. So it's obviously... It's very important that we need to govern Antarctica well, which includes using science well, which is what we've mostly been talking about. Yes. But then you also have Antarctica as a laboratory, if you like, a place which produces science, and not just for itself, but for the rest of the world. And climate change shows both sides. We need to understand how the global climate is changing so we can protect Antarctic areas from being seriously damaged by that, or try to. But at the same time, we need evidence from the Antarctic region to help us understand the global situation and so to presumably inform policies elsewhere yeah and it's there's kind of a virtual circle in a way because a virtuous circle where we need to we need to do science in antarctica which of course has an impact on the environment so we need to look after the environment in antarctica in order to maintain those scientific values so that yeah so you know if we if we damage Antarctica, well, you know, the scientific value is going to degrade over time. Hmm. And then another kind of zoom out I wanted to, to suggest to you. You can look at Antarctica as a unique place, which it clearly is, hence its crazy governance structure. But you can also look at the whole way it's set up, both in terms of governance and science more generally, which, as we said, are kind of the same thing there, as, as experiments where we might have lessons to learn for other parts of the world. So I'm thinking, for instance, about whether there are other places in the world where we need multinational consensus governance or there's disputed sovereignty or maybe where science advice plays an important role. Um, are there places like that? And, and what lessons can we take from Antarctica to help us out there? Yes, yep. So I think... Well, the United Nations are currently negotiating a new instrument for areas beyond national jurisdiction um, in the oceans, so better managing and improving biodiversity in these high seas areas. And Antarctica could provide many lessons into this process. So this new treaty that the United Nations are negotiating um, has kind of multiple prongs and a couple of those is environmental impact assessment and also marine protected areas and the area-based management tools. And like I said earlier, Antarctica's already established two marine protected areas in, you know, contested high seas 
in the Southern Ocean. And a lot of those lessons could be fed into this process for the UN. It's called the BBNJ, so Biodiversity Beyond Areas of National Jurisdiction. Um, but again, the Antarctic Treaty is quite bad at engaging with these external instruments. And it's, it kind of works in both ways as well, because the Antarctic Treaty system has a lot to learn from other environmental agreements as well. Um, for example, you know, there's a lot of tools that are being used elsewhere, like indicator frameworks for assessing the global state of biodiversity, and they're really well developed. And Antarctica could definitely benefit from using some of these frameworks um, as well. But yeah, and SCAR has been active and kind of recognises the importance of engaging with this. But another area that I think Antarctica is a good experiment for would be space. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, go on, talk about space. Well, I can't talk about space because I feel like I don't know much about the tree that you know how they how that's happening. But that is a fascinating area that I would like to learn more about. Well, all right, okay, fair enough. But then let's be more hypothetical. So we aren't going to suddenly discover another unexpected continent floating around on the Earth that we missed before. But there is still a big unclaimed frontier. Some have called it the, the final frontier. And it's it's not currently populated even by penguins, as far as we know. So what happens when we want to make a base on the moon or Mars or, or build a colony on Europa? Um, assuming we're still running Earth on the basis of nation states, which don't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, should we be trying to build multilateral institutions for these new places? And what can we learn from Antarctica there? Yeah, I, well, I mean, making peace and science and cooperation the sort of key principles of space would be fantastic. I think I probably possibly wouldn't choose a consensus decision-making model. <laughs> um, possibly some improvement on that. I'm not sure what that would look like. I think it would be really important to do a lot of kind of scenario planning, so into the future. So a lot of scenarios around what could possibly go wrong or how could the future possibly change and how could we kind of create some legislation for space that is actually going to allow for adaptation for those things in the future because you don't want to end up with this like clunky, you know, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example of what could happen, but <laughs> some extraterrestrial beings come in and try to, you know, what are you going to do then? So, yeah, I was going to say aliens, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but I, also what's really cool with, with Antarctica, I mean, people have definitely compared it to space in terms of like a good place for people to train and be isolated and know what it feels like to be in a strange environment. Um, but say, I know that, with Europa, they want to get down beneath the ice that's around Europa and see what's kind of below. They think there might be liquid down there, and of course, liquid equals life, right? Um, and they're testing some of these instruments, you know, these kind of like small, small, small submarines in Antarctica underneath the ice. So that's pretty cool. It really is. Yeah, talking to you, I'm starting to see the appeal of why you might want to make this the focus of your professional life. Yeah, but the thing is, is... Yeah, I just hope, you know, we travel all that way to Antarctica and we do all this work and, you know, those scientists are really, really pushing the boundaries of nature by being there in the extreme environment and gathering information that has implications for everybody on Earth and the future of Earth. Is it all worth it? You know, is it is it informing the decisions that we make and how can we do that better? 
Yes, indeed. Well, I suppose that's the million dollar question. And it sounds like your your work is helping to answer it. So thank you so much, Natasha Gardner, for taking the time to introduce me and the listeners to a whole new and quite fascinating domain of science for policy. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me, Toby. It's been an absolute honour. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.